Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a professor discusses recent findings about genetic variants that increase the risk of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We know now from these genetic data that there's a, there are clear biological roots in the DNA that are in part causing the disorder. Researchers from Upstate tell about the increasing risk of malaria in Ecuador and other Latin American countries and how public health is impacted by the economic and political crisis in Venezuela. So one of the things we're most worried about also is the potential introduction of uh, drug-resistant strains of malaria. And a veteran doctor shares his new book about end-of-life issues called Finishing Our Story. Physicians are much less likely to opt for so-called life-saving procedures at the end of life. All that, plus a selection from The Healing News, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore how malaria and other diseases are affecting countries in Latin America that border Venezuela. Then we'll have a discussion about end-of-life issues with a veteran doctor who has written a book called Finishing Our Story. But first, a professor tells about recent findings about genetic variants that increase the risk of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some recent international research involving a scientist at Upstate is giving new insight into the biology behind attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Here to help us understand the research is Dr. Stephen Perone. He's a distinguished professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and a professor of neuroscience and physiology. And I thank you for coming on HealthLink on Air. Thanks for having me. Now, this was a paper published in the journal Nature Genetics. Is it oversimplifying to say you and your research colleagues found genes that cause ADHD? No, that's, that's a good synopsis. It's a little close. Uh, we, we discovered uh, locations on, the, on, the, on our chromosomes, locations in the DNA that have um, spots that are, uh, co- we think, causal for ADHD. And some of them aren't, would be in genes or near genes, but others may be in what we call regulatory regions, parts of the genome that aren't actually genes, but regulate other genes. And for this research, you looked at a lot of people. It, we right? about fifty thousand uh, people with and without ADHD. It was a big international effort that I've been coordinating for about two decades. So it took quite a long time to build a big enough sample to get these data. But it's uh, it's gotten the attention of everyone too because of that because you have such a huge sample and well exactly and it's the first really solid finding that we have molecular data supporting the inheritance of ADHD. We'd known for many years that ADHD runs in families, that if one identical twin has ADHD, there's a big high risk for the other identical twin. So there were, there were a lot of clues that um, genes played a very important role in ADHD, but now we've confirmed it with these molecular data. Okay. So these genetic variants, they they increase your risk or they or they guarantee that you're going to have ADHD? Uh, good question. They, they increase your risk. So they, And they're only the 12 that are confirmed are just the tip of the iceberg. We were able to do other analyses. Uh, The mathematics are complex, but basically what it tells us is that in addition to these 12, there there must be hundreds, if not thousands, of other locations on the chromosome that also increase risk, each very, in a very small way. So the ADHD genes, if you will, or the risk variants we found are carried by lots of people in the population. You have to have lots of them to have ADHD. If you have a, a few of them, you might have a mild version of ADHD, but you wouldn't have ADHD. So the more risk variants you have, the, the more likely or the more increased risk you have. Exactly. For. And of course, those combine with environmental risks to uh, bring a person to having ADHD. So do people with ADHD have all of these variants? Uh, no. Uh, we don't know exactly how many are needed and how many environmental risks are required. That will take a long time to work out. It's believed that if you have a subset of these variants, uh, you can develop ADHD. Okay. Does this um, does your work offer proof that someone with ADHD can pass that disorder on to his or her children, or did we already know that? Well, we already knew that, but this this shows for sure that it's due to genetic inheritance, as opposed to, uh, for example, factors that are transmitted by parents that are le- through learning or culture and so forth. 
Okay, and and you uh, found twelve variants, but there's suspicion that there's many more. Right, because we we subject our test to very stringent tests of what we call statistical significance, and only twelve of them met those criteria because they're very stringent. If we were to double our sample size, we probably would get actually not just twelve; we'd probably get as many as fifty. And so wow. it's really a question of statistics and getting bigger numbers of uh, of um, samples, be able to discover more variants. So what can you tell us about these 12 variants that are involved so far? What are their roles or like what do they what do they do? What are they well, responsible for? What's most interesting about these variants is that uh, in the 1990s a group of us sat down and we brainstormed what we thought would be the important uh, genes for ADHD based on what we knew then about the biology of the disorder. And most of what we knew was based upon the drugs that are effective for treating the disorder, which work in dopamine and neuropinephrine circuits. So we proposed a list of about 50 50 genes and it turns out that none of them were in the top 12 that we found. And so what's, what is exciting about that is we're discovering new biological mechanisms that uh, underlie the disorder and that may at some point, not, not in the near future, but in the more distant future, provide us new targets for drug development and more efficacious treatments and even possibly prevention in the long term. Um, are these genes connected to other disorders, or is it just uh, ADHD? No, they are connected to other disorders. So we've suspected for a long time from epidemiologic data and clinical data that ADHD and other disorders share risk factors. And what we've done now uh, in our big psychiatric genetics consortium is to show that ADHD shares genes with other disorders, for example, depression, autism, uh, bipolar disorder, and even some with schizophrenia. So there seems to be a general, if you will, genetic risk for mental illness that then gets uh, translated into specific disorders depending upon environmental risks and other genetic risks that a person carries. Interesting. Um, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Professor Stephen Ferrone about the genetic risk for ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So let's put into perspective how many people are affected by ADHD. Um, it, it, tell me if this is correct. Uh, boys are four times more prevalent or more chance of having it yes. than girls. Um, and up to 5% of children and teens are affected. Up to 2.5% of adults are affected. So does it get better as a person ages? Well, what or? happens is that as a person with ADHD ages, uh, there's what we call age-dependent remission. So that as a person gets older, the, their ADHD has some probability of remitting. So by age, say, 25, only two-thirds of people who had ADHD as children will continue to have uh, impairing symptoms of the disorder as, as adults. And as, as they get even a little bit older, you find some more remission. That remission tends to be related to uh, some changes in the brain. For example, uh, we, we, we see that the brains of ADHD children tend to show deficits in certain areas in terms of, of smaller brain volumes. They're not so small that a, a radiologist would be worried about it if he saw it on a, on a film, uh, but they're, they're small when compared to groups of non-ADHD kids. Those differences attenuate as, as ADHD kids get older, and in the children who remit, they tend to attenuate faster. Can you predict uh, which child is going to see a remission? And uh, Not yet. It's a goal of ongoing research to try to predict that. We don't can't do it yet. Can no. you tell me how ADHD is diagnosed and then how it's treated? Currently. Sure. It's, it's diagnosed by a uh, pediatrician or a mental health clinician, psychiatrist, psychologist, who follows a, a very strict set of rules in our diagnostic manual. Uh, for a child, it involves asking the parent about a set of symptoms that involve inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. If the child has enough of those symptoms and shows uh, an, an impairing disorder for at least six months, they have the diagnosis. Okay. And of course, we could also diagnose adults, but we then talk to the adult directly. Sure. And then having ADHD, uh, that increases your risks for some other things as well, right? It does. So ADHD is a predictor of the subsequent onset of other disorders. Uh, substance use disorder is probably the, one of the worst comorbidities that they can have in terms of uh, affecting life course. Uh, but ADHD kids are also at risk for subsequent depression and bipolar disorder. Even some, we're discovering now some uh, what we call somatic comorbidities, things like hypertension, um, obesity. These are associated with ADHD. Disorders associated with inflammation like uh, uh, asthma and eczema are also associated with ADHD. And this is not to say that every ADHD child is, at, is gonna have all these disorders, or even any one of them, but on average, probably about 30% or more of these kids will have an, at least one of these, one or more of these disorders. And that's something for the providers or the doctors to be aware of? Absolutely, to... absolutely. Okay. 
So if ADHD um, is a mental disorder, what does it have to do with impulsivity and inattention in the general population? Well, what we think now is that uh, ADHD is a continuous, continuously varying trait in the population. We know that from the genetic data, for example, I've mentioned there are hundreds of thousands of genes, so that everybody carries some genetic risk for ADHD. When we've done genetic studies comparing the genetics of ADHD in um, people diagnosed with the disorder, and then we look at kids in the population and just look at ADHD symptoms, we find that variation in symptoms is essentially predicted by the same genes as the disorder. So we think of it more as, more like we think of hypertension. Everybody has a blood pressure, but some people have high blood pressure, it needs to be treated. So everybody has a, some touch of ADHD, but only some people have high enough ADHD to diagnosed. require treatment and diagnosis. Okay. So what did you find out about educational performance in people who do not have ADHD but do have these genetic variants? Well, we were able to do a number of, of clever studies. Where we can, we, what we do is correlate the genetics of ADHD with the genetics of other conditions. And one of those was educational performance. So the way to think of this is we did this big study of ADHD. Someone else did a big study of educational performance. And we looked at to see whether the same genes were driving the, those two situations. And what we found was that genes that were predictive of low educational performance were the same genes that were predictive of having ADHD, essentially. And you did that also for obesity and type 2 diabetes? And the same finding for obesity and type 2 diabetes, that there's this genetic overlap, that genes that increase risk for obesity also increase risk for ADHD and vice versa. So is it possible that's a coincidence, or are they connected? Or no, it's not a coincidence, because that's the value of statistics. We can show with statistical analysis that it's not by chance, not just okay. as it's, it's actually a, what we think is the shared underlying biology that is driving the expression of these two disorders. Both, wow. Yeah. Well, now that we know which genes are involved, or some of the genes that are mm -hmm. involved, um, what's next? What do we do next? Well, we, uh, number one, we try to collect more samples of people with ADHD that can provide us with DNA to, to discover more genes. We use the data we have right now to explore the biological pathways that are implicated. Um, I have some colleagues, for example, who are working on trying to use these data to identify uh, new targets for drug development that they or drug companies might use to try to find a better treatment for the disorder. Do you have theories about um, environmental factors that may be involved too? Um, uh, sure. So we know from other studies that have been done that uh, environmental factors, particularly those that occur very early in development, when I mean early, I mean when the child is a fetus. So for example, if the mother is drinking too much during pregnancy, smoking during pregnancy, um, if the child experiences birth complications that cut off oxygen to the brain, things like this are also increase the risk for ADHD to a small degree. They, like, the, like the actual genes, they, they, each of these risks is a small incremental effect on the disorder. Now these home genetic test kits are popular, and I don't know if any of the ones that are out there test for these particular variants yet, but inevitably someone could go and get a genetic screening or their genome right. done. Um, is there anything you can recommend to people that find out they have one or more of these particular variants? Um, is, is my recommendation is don't worry, because these variants are not predictive of the diagnosis in the sense of being able to accurately say who does and doesn't have ADHD. When we say they're associated with the disorder, we know that they're part of the causal chain, but that's different from saying we can accurately predict who has it. That's the goal, actually, of some of my ongoing research here, to try to improve uh, our methodology so that we can someday predict from genetic data who does have the disorder, but it's much too soon for that. And there's nothing to be done that a person can do to, to prevent it from developing if it's going to develop? We don't know what to tell them yet? Uh, no, we do. I mean, if a parent was concerned, for example, if it's, let's say a parent has a preschool child who had some symptoms of ADHD and they went to the pediatrician, the pediatrician might tell them, uh, well, you know, your child is kind of looks like they might develop ADHD based upon the symptoms, not genetics, mm -hmm. and they would make some suggestions as to how they could do use certain kinds of parenting skills or parenting programs to help control the child's behavior at, at that very early stage. And that may help, um, if you will, pr either prevent the disorder or delay its onset. And that's something that we're already able to offer. That we can offer, exactly. So the, 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 having this, the, the genetics is fascinating from the point of view of scientists trying to learn more and eventually develop treatments, but parents should focus on the child's behaviors and where they have problems and deal with it that way. So knowing that there's some genetic um, roots to this disorder, mm -hmm. um, how does that apply to parents who have a child 
with ADHD. Well, it tells the parents that the disorder of ADHD is a disorder that is driven by biological factors. Uh, for many, many years, parents have been blamed by uh, the people in the media, people who have uh, other agendas. Uh, they've said parents are causing ADHD, they're poor parents, the teachers are not good teachers, and that if we could only have better parents and better teachers, this disorder would exist. We've had people claim ADHD is an American disorder created by pharmaceutical companies to sell drugs. And we know now from these genetic data that there's a, there are clear biological roots in the DNA that are in part causing the disorder. ADHD is diagnosed worldwide, though, right? It's, it's, di- it's actually diagnosed worldwide. Even though you hear claims that it's due to American culture, anywhere you go, anywhere anyone's looked for ADHD, they found it at about the same prevalence as we have it in the United States. And your study is an international study. You- well, exactly. So we have sites in Europe, Scandinavia, South America, China, um, anywhere you look for ADHD, it's there, and it's, it, you find the same uh, inheritance of the disorder around the world. Do you see a time when children would be screened for these variants at birth, say? It's a long way off. It would be my dream that you know maybe 50 years from now we'd be able to have enough information to say that we have a good and accurate screening test that would be useful for doctors. And then the doctors would hopefully be able to offer something to do or to intervene. That's in right. Some way. That's right. Then, and that would be. It would also be useful for researchers. So, if researchers could predict who's at high risk, then those researchers could actually study preventive programs to see to try to prevent the disorder in the future. And then, then we'd have a whole. My my dream, which I won't see, but a hundred years from now, that we'll actually have preventive treatments for psychiatric conditions. Because once they once they occur, we can help people, but we can't cure them. And I think the only way to actually stop them is to prevent them before they to start. To prevent it. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you for being here. My guest has been Upstate Professor Stephen Ferrone. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, how the economic and political crisis in Venezuela is impacting public health in Latin America. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The economic and political crisis in Venezuela is straining the entire Latin American healthcare system with shortages of food and medicine and disease outbreaks spilling over the borders. Here to talk about what's going on and to share some of their recent research are Upstate Assistant Professor Anna Stewart Ibarra and fourth-year medical student Dan Farrell. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air to both of you. Thanks. Thank you for having us. So you have a paper published in a journal called Emerging Infectious Diseases, published by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that focuses on the resurgence of malaria at the border of Ecuador and Peru. So tell us about that. We were inspired to write this paper um, based on our experience in Ecuador this summer, as we noticed that several cases of malaria were popping up, um, especially in Venezuelan migrants. Um, and the impetus for this was because this region in Ecuador, near the border between the southern and coastal border between Peru and Ecuador, uh, previously mal- eliminated malaria in 2011 um, through a combination of local efforts with vector control surveillance that Dr. Stuart Ibarra was involved in. Uh, so with this rise in cases, we obviously wanted to highlight the importance of this, especially being an area on the border with many people moving through going south to Peru. Does that say that Venezuela is not as good at controlling malaria as Ecuador had been? Or what does that say? Yeah, so while Venezuela has seen a a very dramatic rise in malaria in Mm -hmm. recent years, it's Mm -hmm. been up like 365% from 2000 to 2015. And kind of what we're seeing is like a spillover effect. You know, most people are going to Colombia first. They have a large increase in malaria cases as well. And we're seeing them coming through Ecuador as well. So it's kind of a rippling effect through the entire continent, which is sort of scary to see. Let's do a little review, though. What, what is malaria? 
So malaria is a parasite that's transmitted by certain species of mosquitoes, uh, Anopheles mosquitoes. And so the mosquito has the parasite, it then bites someone who may be healthy, passes the parasite to that person, the parasite then has to replicate inside the person, and then that person is infectious, so another mosquito can come and bite them and pass it to another person. And, and it can be a fatal disease? Malaria can be or? a fatal disease, yeah, and is especially worrisome for pregnant women. But it can also be treated. And so uh, the two different kinds of malaria that are in this part of the world are Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium falciparum. Both of these diseases had been present in this part of Ecuador and Peru. They were historically endemic. We had large epidemics of these diseases. But like Dan mentioned, in 2011 and 2012, thanks to a binational collaboration between Ecuador and Peru, they were totally eliminated. And we haven't seen any cases since then, which is why when we started noticing the resurgence in cases in, in the migrant refugee population, we were especially concerned because we knew that these mosquito vectors were still present. And so there was the potential for the disease to come back. And uh, unfortunately, what we did notice was that in November, we, saw, we had evidence of now local cases. So it's not just in the migrant population. It seems like it is spilling over into the local population and in Ecuador and also in northern Peru. And we've actually seen what looks like a, a small epidemic that's starting to unfold in northern Peru in local people now. So does this mean that, I mean, when you start seeing cases that are um, local, mm-hmm. does that mean it's not eliminated, it's back. Correct. Wow. So this is the risk of resurgence in an area where we thought we were close to eliminating the disease. We're also seeing probably a very small portion of these cases. If they're reporting, we had seven confirmed reported cases in Ecuador and 20 confirmed in Peru at the time of publication, but Mm. there's probably many more that aren't being reported or people who are asymptomatic. Yeah, and since then, there have been more cases that have been identified in Peru and Ecuador. And in total, I was I was told by a colleague who's a malaria expert in Ecuador, there have been about 50 imported cases across all of Ecuador. Just the imported cases. So that's not counting now the number of cases that first, first as Dan mentioned, were, are going undetected. And second, the cases that are now spilling over into local populations and that may be asymptomatic and not being picked up by surveillance systems. Do we know why Venezuela, the numbers in, of malaria had gone up? Because this has been happening going back several years, right? It's not a, a recent phenomenon. Are there just more mosquitoes? I mean, what's what's the issue? I would say the issue is the political and socioeconomic crisis in Venezuela, which is a very complicated issue. But mm. there's been a lack of um, mosquito control efforts. There's been a lack of anti-malarial medications, mm-hmm. shortages of food and medicine, extreme inflation. The population can't afford to mm-hmm. um, take care of its citizens. Um, so unfortunately, massive amounts of Venezuelans are leaving the country for this reason and moving around within the country as well. Um, there's widespread malaria mm-hmm. and other many other diseases as well. And actually in the, the case reports, the descriptions of the cases that we worked on with Dan, the people, the, these Venezuelan migrants reported having had multiple infections of malaria previously while they lived in Venezuela and having had inadequate access to medication or incomplete treatments. One over 16 times, all not treated well in Venezuela. This is a common history for these patients. Mm -hmm. They knew what it was. And so one of the things we're most worried about also is the potential introduction of uh, drug-resistant strains of malaria. Because these are individuals who had had inadequate and incomplete malaria treatment previously, that increases the risk that now we would see uh, drug-resistant strains. And if we have drug-resistant strains, then that's a real problem because now we're not able to treat and and stop an epidemic. And malaria is that's not the only disease that's becoming a problem in that region, right? Are you, are there other diseases that are becoming? Yeah, dengue, chikungunya, Chagas disease. Some that those are other mosquito borne, right? Yeah. Other mosqu- and also in this most recent trip to Ecuador and speaking with colleagues in the Ministry of Health, it came to light also. Um, the real risk and worry about the resurgence of HIV AIDS in this region, especially. Uh, and that's a, a disease that's not going to be picked up as quickly, right? Like malaria, where you might have obvious febrile symptoms. Someone could have HIV AIDS and not have obvious symptoms immediately. And because a lot of the population, like as Dan said, are mobile, they're moving southward through Colombia, Ecuador, down into the southern cone of South America. Um, many, uh, in many cases, rates of prostitution are going up, especially in the border region. And so this is a real, real concern of ours. And hand in hand goes increasing rates of tuberculosis.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with assistant professor, uh, Dr. Anna Stewart-Ibarra, and fourth-year medical student, Dan Farrell, uh, about the economic and political crisis in Venezuela and what that's doing to the entire Latin American healthcare system. So Venezuelans who need medical care, they're fleeing to Brazil, Ecuador, Peru. What is that doing to the healthcare system in Brazil, Ecuador, and Peru? Well, we can talk about Ecuador, but I'm sure it's similar in other countries. It puts a strain on these local countries. Um, people are coming, they need health care, they need jobs, they need basic services, and um, mm-hmm. it's difficult for these countries to provide that, and they continue to move on until they can find a place where they're mm-hmm. able to um, live safely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also mentioned it also is promoting a lot of xenophobia um, in Ecuador, which is also dangerous to consider um, as these Venezuelan migrants are tied to diseases. They're, you know, there's a stigma associated with that. Yeah, and there's a lot of sort of awareness raising that certain advocacy groups are having in, in Ecuador and other places to reduce the xenophobia, like Dan mentioned, which is uh, a, a real concern because we need to make sure that all all people, all citizens, regardless of what country, are being cared for in a compassionate way because yeah, these are people coming from really difficult situations. But I, I will mention that from speaking to my colleagues in the Ecuador Ministry of Health, they have been emphatic in saying that all Venezuelans or all people, regardless of nationality, are receiving full health care, access to free medication, the same as any citizen in Ecuador, the same treatment as anybody else from any other country, whether from the U.S. or Venezuela. And so they have been really, um, like I said, emphatic, passionate about providing health care to all people. But there, as Dan said, you know, that has its limits because even Ecuador as a country is currently under financial strain. This is a year with really limited financial resources. And so, you know, it's at some point it's going to give, something's going to give. Well, what does Ecuador need more of in order to try to fix this? Do they need more medicine? Do they need, I mean, is there, a, is, do you see sort of a way to fix this or help? Well, in particular with this study that we were focusing on with malaria, we really need to strengthen the surveillance system. So since malaria was eliminated in 2011, a lot of the international funding, for example, the Global Fund, um, that used to support the local malaria control and surveillance efforts disappeared, right? So we celebrate as, yay, we, we, we fix the malaria problem, and then the money goes away. And we see this again and again in other places around the world, other diseases. And so that's a real problem. So the surveillance systems have been weakened. We need to strengthen the surveillance systems. And also uh, anti-malarial medication. I know currently, locally, on hand, there's a very, very limited stock of anti-malarial medication. And then third, also training the physicians and the microscopists to be able to know and to be aware and to diagnose a case rapidly. So we need training and capacity strengthening. Uh, Many of these doctors haven't seen a malaria case in eight years or maybe never, you know, the the younger doctors because it's been eliminated locally. And so um, these were some of the initiatives that came out of uh, a meeting that we held last week in Ecuador, a binational meeting with representatives from the Ministry of Health of Ecuador and Peru. We also discussed the need to begin to hold regular meetings between both countries. So we're actually able to share information, um, which used to occur when malaria was prevalent, uh, but then hasn't in recent years. And so we need to reactivate that network of, of public health leaders so that we can really address this issue because the diseases know no borders. So what happens if this goes unchecked? You just said diseases know no borders. Does malaria just become out of control and... There's a definite risk that malaria could again become established in the population. We could start to see again, you know, regular transmission, um, outbreaks every few years. That's the fear. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what it was like up until, you know, before the last decade. Malaria caused explosive epidemics in this region. And it is out of control in Venezuela. And Venezuela, like in the 50s, was very successful, almost eradicating it from their entire country. So it's it's one of the first countries to do that in the Americas. Um, So it's really interesting how quickly things can change and how, you know, I think we think we're very insulated from these diseases. But I mean, even here in the U.S., we used to have malaria. So it's it's really just below our border. Is this something that America needs to uh, be involved in? I mean, would this unchecked, would malaria spread to America as well? Well, certainly it increases the risk for travelers. Americans travel to South America all the time. Um, And I would say this isn't just linked to what's happening in Venezuela. I should take a step back. You know, we've seen that there has been an increase also in the Peruvian Amazon. The Amazon region as a whole has been sort of a hotspot for malaria that we've 
been sort of unable to elim- a place where it's been really difficult to eliminate and we've seen a resurgence in recent years so some of it is linked to the venezuelan crisis but i think there are other factors going on but overall increases again the risk across the whole region some of the people fleeing from venezuela are are you seeing doctors and nurses that are fleeing venezuela and are they Definitely. staying to help mm-hmm. in the- i gave a talk in quito in the capital city in ecuador last week presenting some of these findings and other work that we've done on climate and and health in ecuador and in in the audience in the front and center was uh, a gentleman who introduced himself during the question and answer period and he had been head of the venezuelan malaria control initiative for 30 years and so he was there in ecuador seeking asylum basically and had a lot of really insightful comments, but he was fairly heartbroken to see what's happening in his country. The research that Upstate's involved in, is that ongoing still um, in Ecuador? Well, we have ongoing studies to monitor uh, febrile infections. So people who come in with a suspected um, mosquito-borne disease, they enter our studies, which have been ongoing since 2013. So we have the potential to uh, detect malaria cases. And also dengue and... Dengue fever, chikungunya, Zika. And now we're beginning to actually look at tick-borne diseases. um, And we're finding uh, a large number of of tick-borne diseases that are causing febrile illness. And this is an area where tick-borne diseases have previously been completely undiagnosed. And so it's not on the doctor's radars. It's not part of the differential diagnosis currently. So there's some education that goes along with the study, I'm sure. And needing to increase uh, diagnostic capacity right now there is no local capacity to diagnose tick-borne diseases. Well, thank you both for coming in and talking about this. I, uh, I appreciate it. My guests have been Assistant Professor uh, Dr. Anna Stewart-Ibarra and fourth-year medical student Dan Farrell. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what you need to think about toward the end of your life. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Many of us are at ease talking about remembering various stages of our lives, infancy and childhood, our young adulthood, middle ages. But when it comes to the end of our lives, many of us are less open, maybe because of fears or avoidance of the unknown or the awareness of the finality of death. A new book called Finishing Our Story, Preparing for the End of Life, helps us understand this final stage. And here in the HealthLink on Air studio is the author, Dr. Gregory Eastwood. He's a physician and ethicist who served for many years as president of Upstate Medical University. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Eastwood. Nice to be back here, Amber. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I know you've written many other papers and chapters in professional books, and you spent quite a bit of time, a few years, working on this book, which is for regular people. Um, why did you choose this topic? It was for non-medical audience. For non-medical. Which, which means everyone, <laughs> <laughs> and particularly the subject matter. Uh, each of us will confront our own mortality someday if we haven't already. And of course, every one of us has had experience in having a loved one die or a good friend. Sure. So who who is this designed for? Do you envision it, um, you know, people seeking this as a resource after they get sort of a troubling diagnosis? Or do you envision adult children purchasing it for their parents? I mean, who did you have in mind? Well, as I implied in my comment a minute ago or so, it's for everyone. But I think practically, uh, it is probably for people in their mid-years and later years. I teach uh, students, medical students and nursing students and others. And uh, of course, their careers will involve uh, dying, and they probably had some experience themselves uh, with friends and relatives dying. But I think it resonates more with mid-career, mid-life people and older. So why did you want to write about this subject? Well, maybe uh, you know I'm in maybe the third phase of my life. <laughs> the future will tell. And uh, also, I've had the privilege of 
having an interesting career. As you said, I was president here at Upstate for a long time, from the early 90s until about a decade ago. And since that time, most of, most of the time I've been teaching ethics, uh, medical ethics, and also on the ethics consult service for a university hospital. And that experience has been very uh, eye-opening for me. Uh, it, it really has reinforced some of the things I knew already, but I've been dealing in those consultations with patients, with their families, with nurses, doctors, social workers, struggling with some of the issues at end of life. So I don't wanted to say something about it, and I just felt compelled to, to write this book. Well, the book um, talks about dying as being a process. Mm -hmm. So walk me through what that process consists of. Well, the process, I, I make a little quip about that. I say the process of dying in the first chapter, the, the chapter is titled Dying Isn't What It Used to Be. Um, and it certainly isn't. And the process of dying is quite different than it was several decades ago. The quip is that death is the same. <laughs> it's, you know, when we die, we're dead, at least in a physical sense. The ending is the same. The ending is the same. But the way we get there now, as opposed to several decades ago, is quite different. I think most listeners can, can relate to that, that uh, in the past, and I, in the book, I recall my first memory when I was three years old, and my grandmother, my father's mother, had died in her mid-70s of a stroke. And I, that memory is standing in her home where she had been put out onto a table and it was the wake uh, and friends and relatives and a minister and so on came by. That was it. She died suddenly. There was no fuss, no gadgetry. Uh, the minister and the church were just a few blocks away and so on. And she was in her home. And she was in her home, surrounded by her husband, my grandfather, and her children, uh, so on. And... Um, now, I think most people can relate to this. Most people, not all, but most people die in the hospital. Often it's attended by some kind of what I call gadgetry, a ventilator, uh, medications to keep your blood pressure going, and so on. I think the listeners can fill in all the details from their own experience for this. So dying seems like it's an emotional activity or there's a lot of emotions involved in it. But in order, if you're like, if you're planning for the final chapter of your life or your mm -hmm. death, do you need to remove the emotions to do that? I don't think you need to remove the emotions. What you need to do is try to understand the process. Um, the title of the book, of course, is Finishing Our Story. That's the main title. And the subtitle is Preparing for the End of Life. And in the book, I, particularly the last chapter, which is called Finishing Our Story, I talk about the phenomenon that each of us undergoes, and that is we create a narrative of our life, whether we're aware of it or not. And as life proceeds in our middle years and later years, we have a story about uh, the beginning and the middle and the end. And we are the author of that story pretty much throughout our lives, except perhaps at the end of life, we may not be the author. And that would be because we can't be the author. We might be uh, in a coma. We might be demented. We might be uh, affected in some way. And I, I talk about that. And that's part of preparing for the end of life, uh, understanding what it might be like at the end of life. Uh, do you want to have some control over those decisions at the end of life? Uh, who would you appoint or uh, select to, to make some of those decisions for you? So uh, it's a complicated process. It's, as I say, it leads to the same thing as it always has in the past to, to death. But the process is really quite different now. You've also got a chapter called The Good Life. Mm -hmm. What does that have to so do with So The Good that? Life, that's the second chapter. And that, that has to do with our concepts of quality of life. And why is that important? Well, it's important because many of the decisions we make at the end of life or anticipating the end of life are affected by how we regard quality of our lives. What, how important is that to us? And it's, people range quite a bit. Some people place a high value on their ability to think and do and walk and participate and so on. And so that is part of quality of life. 
Uh, and so that affects some of the decisions we might make. Others uh, place a high value on life itself. Uh, there are some people who think that the spark of life is the most important, and, and doctors and nurses and the health facilities should do everything possible to preserve that spark of life. So it's not a uniform approach, to the, but it's important for us to understand how we feel about uh, quality of life and life itself. So very individual. Very individual, yes. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Gregory Eastwood. He's a physician and ethicist who served for many years as president of Upstate Medical University, and he's got a new book from Oxford University Press called Finishing Our Story, Preparing for the End of Life. What does your book say about physician-assisted death and other forms of suicide at the end of life? So physician-assisted death is a very controversial subject. I don't have to tell the listeners that. I think most people appreciate that. Here in the state of New York, it's come up uh, from time to time, and uh, it has been rejected, although there is a substantial population of the state that is in sympathy with it. So so what is physician-assisted death, first of all? Well, it is uh, in the states that allow it now, and there are seven states, and the District of Columbia. The first state was Oregon in the mid-1990s. In those states, the law is very specific. And it says that if a person uh, seeks physician-assisted death, they can approach a physician who agrees to participate. Physicians have the option. They don't have to. And they can seek a prescription for a drug, usually a barbiturate, that will kill them if they take the drug. The statistics on this are quite interesting. Uh, first of all, I should point out that patients need to be certified by two independent physicians that they have less than six months to live. That, that prediction is not always accurate, as listeners know, but at least that is a, a safeguard. And then there is a two-week cooling off or waiting period, let's say, between the request uh, the patient has to the physician and the actual writing of the of the prescription. So it can't this isn't a decision that can be made in haste or it, it's not that's correct. And uh, family uh, of the patient are encouraged to participate and so on. Uh, this 6 month prediction of death also is accompanied by the requirement that they have to be uh, legal residents of the state. So that pretty much prevents someone hopping from one state to another although it has happened in the past. New York State is not one of the No, seven. but there are, there, there's a substantial uh, group of people who are interested in doing this. This probably will come up again soon uh, as a referendum or some form where the citizens of New York State will have to make a, a decision about it. I started to say that the statistics are interesting in this. The, the, the people who oppose this and still oppose it to some extent were worried that physician-assisted death would be a way that disadvantaged people, people with disabilities, maybe poor people, maybe ethnic minorities would predominantly um, use this or be coerced to use it. The facts are that now with the experience in these seven states and the District of Columbia, the typical person who takes advantage of this is white, middle class, and male. Now, that by no means, that's, that's everyone, of course, that, but that is the typical person. And also, uh, various studies are a little bit different, but one well-known study a few years ago from University of Washington, they looked at the number of people who inquired about this, about half take advantage of it, so half do not. Those half who take advantage of it and get a prescription, about 60% actually take the pills, and about 40% do not take the pills. That's interesting. When asked why they don't take the pills, or they say it's, it's a matter of control. Uh, here I am at the end of life. Uh, I may be in a great deal of pain. It's nice to know there's an option. Interesting. In my, my, that chapter that I talk about, physician-assisted death, or I think it's titled something like, May I Kill Myself?, I point out also that there are other options. Uh, one that seems to be gaining in use is called VSED, Voluntary Stopping Eating and Drinking. 
And this is a very simple thing in concept, difficult to execute. And that is people just at the end of life can stop eating and drinking and uh, death ensues within a week or two weeks. It takes a lot of willpower and it takes a lot of willpower on the part the caregivers of the caregivers, probably the That's family. Right. Diane Rehm, the radio personality, wrote a book about this because that was the method her husband chose in, when he was in his 80s and was failing. And so if listeners have access to that, I think it's called something like On My Own Time or something. I can't remember the exact, but it's by Diane Rehm. Very readable book and describes uh, her experience and his experience with that. Well, let me ask you, since you're an ethicist, is is physician-assisted death or suicide at the end of life, is that an ethical choice? So let me answer that question by uh, recalling an exercise we do in one of my classes for medical students. And we ask the students to answer that question. The question goes something like this. If you lived in a state that permitted physician-assisted death, would you participate and why? And Or would you not participate in why? Over the last five or six years, about half the students say they would and half would not. And this is after a thorough discussion of the topic. Why would a doctor choose to participate? I think those doctors who choose to participate feel that caring for patients as they're dying and through death is all part of the deal. Uh, And that is a method of relieving suffering. And the primary duty of a doctor is to to attend to the welfare of a patient. So those doctors who participate include this in improving the welfare of the patient. Of course, the exact opposite view is held by doctors who don't participate. They say, I'm here to take care of the patient. I'm not here to kill the patient. <laughs> and so, uh, you, and there, there are views in between, of course, but those are the, uh, the poles of the views. And it, it's going to be that way, I think, for a long, long time. And those are both legitimate views. Have you noticed that changing over time, or do you anticipate it'll continue changing? I think it is changing, and it's changing in the direction that more doctors and more people in the general population are sympathetic with, uh, with taking matters in your own hands if you feel that's the time to do it and doing something to kill yourself. It's interesting, um, studies of doctors and their views about end of life and uh, compared to non-physicians uh, or non-medical people and show that physicians are much less likely to opt for so-called life-saving procedures at the end of life. Uh, in other words, they're more likely to say, I, I don't want to be revived after my heart stops. I don't want to have tubes in me, you know, this or that, ventilators, what have you. Again, these are, are trends. They're not absolutes. And there are some doctors who feel one way or other way. And uh, so that's an interesting observation also. Well, your book sounds like it's a very useful guide for everyone, as you say. Um, My guest has been Dr. Gregory Eastwood, author of the new Oxford University Press book, Finishing Our Story, Preparing for the End of Life. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Mourning and burial rituals are both personal and communal. I'd like to read three of our poets who gave us eloquent and powerful testimonies of this. First is Ginger Hanchi, who lectures at Baylor University in the English department. Close your eyes and envision the story she creates for us in her poem, Floating Circle. Five men jump into the water, one after another, after your ashes have been scattered there. They jump off the rail as if from a burning car, as if to heaven itself, each uncle, grandfather, father, sprawling toward you, every muscle of every man in earnest. They each take their place in a floating circle. They say, you are not alone. We are here with you. They say, we contain you. Though you spilled from your body and now seep into the blue deeps, we will hold you within us. They say, our generations stretch your three years into something more like a lifespan. They say, 
We put points on these gulfs of sadness. We will connect the dots and try to see something recognizable. They say, we will rein in the expansiveness of grief that we swim in, try not to drown. Five men jump into the water, fall like beautiful ashes. Next is Kaz Sussman, a poet and carpenter in Oregon, who gives us a poignant vision of those who are left behind in his poem, Through a Sky of Crimson Thread. We carry the survivors as best we can, wrapped in a shawl huge enough to hold the unsettled dreams of Chagall. Folk dancers huddle in the folds. Old men can be heard chanting. A mother's shin dangles from the spill, and bluefish sail through a sky of crimson thread among children trusting in the improbable. The barges of our hearts ferry the cobble together, one being of many beats. We carry the survivors as best we can, only later seeing we are the survivors we carry, and we are those left behind. And finally, poet Lisa Wiley, who teaches at SUNY Erie Community College, gives us a lighter moment somewhat of grief in her poem called Irish Wake. We hear hollering from the curb, clamor of a lawn fed erupts from the backyard. A banquet table beer game centers all the commotion, empty aluminum cans everywhere. The devout widow is up to bat. She aims her ping pong ball at the red line of plastic red solo cups, making it to second, the crowd roars. Finally, they let loose after so many dark months of decline. Mr. Healy is in heaven now, safe at home. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO Dr. Robert Corona discuss teamwork and resiliency. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.